And so this is our what is usually the Simon Don study group, but uh, today we're continuing our reading of Kavayas and Lodman's text, Mathematical Thought, that we started last week. So last time we read through Kavayas' section, his his part of the presentation, and so we saw his his version of what the dialectic means in relation to mathematics. And for him, it has to do with this intertwining of necessity and contingency in, in the evolution of mathematics. So in relation to a particular problem, there's always a certain contingency from when you're looking at the problem before it's solved. So you have a contingency in terms of how the, um, how the problem will be solved. There's no, there's no way of sort of reading off the solution of the problem from the statement of the problem itself. And so it requires creativity and um, some sort of uh, novelty to actually solve a problem. But then on the other hand, after the problem is solved, you have this form of necessity. So you can, you can look at the problem after it was solved and say, yes, of course, this is the, the new concept or the new technique or whatever that was needed to solve this problem. And you can sort of retroactively say that there's a, a necessity to this solution. And, and so this dialectic uh, has to do with holding on to both the necessity and the contingency at the same time and, and not sort of taking one as real and the other as, as not real or, or something along those lines. So we have to hold on to both and, and sort of constantly remind ourselves of each side, even though from one angle, the necessity might seem more obvious or, or from another angle, the contingency might seem more obvious, uh, but we, we have to sort of keep, keep the, other, uh, the other one in mind in each of those situations. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the, the positive side of what Kavayas presented. And, and there was also the negative side where he, he argues that certain conceptions of mathematics that were uh, proposed in the like, late 19th to early 20th century, um, namely logicism and formalism, these conceptions of mathematics are no longer viable because of certain technical results in in logic, uh, partic in particular uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorems. The, they have the results of making some of these conceptions not viable. And likewise, in the case of logicism, there's the, um, the fact that the various consistency proofs that have been, uh, or, or the, the various systems of attempts to derive mathematics from logic have all had, had to appeal to non-logical principles. Uh, so the, the principle of uh, complete recursion, for example, you, you have to use these principles that are uh, not really, can't really be described as logical. You have to use them in, in your construction at, at certain points. And so the idea that mathematics would be reducible to logic ends up not working uh, for, for, for these attempts. And then the, the last thing that we ended on and that we, we didn't have a chance to go into in any detail was that Kavayas alludes to the um, what's called the Skolem paradox, and he gives a, a very brief statement of, of this paradox. So he says, uh, this is on page uh, seven of the PDF. He says, 
if we have a model which we assume satisfies a system of axioms, it is always possible to construct a countable model satisfying that same system of axioms. In particular, one can satisfy the system of axioms of set theory with a countable model. He just he just states this very briefly, and, and he he, as he says earlier, he uh, he can't go into the details because you would have to actually um, establish a certain formalism and and then prove this this result within that formalism. Um, but the Golem paradox uh, has to do in particular with um, uh, a first order model, uh, a model of uh, a first order set theory. Um, in set theory, you can prove that that not all infinite numbers are the same in size, essentially. So in particular, you, there's a, a difference between countable infinities, like the set of natural numbers, um, uh, you know, 0, 1, 2, 3, etc. The, the countable sets uh, are distinct in size from uh, various uncountable sets, like the set of real numbers. So this is something that, that Cantor proved in the 1870s, I believe. And, and this, this was sort of the introduction of the idea of infinite cardinalities into, uh, or infinite sizes of, of, of sets into mathematics. So he, in, in set theory, you can prove that the set of real numbers is not countable. So it, it's, um, uh, it's not the case that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the real numbers and the natural numbers. But then there's also this theorem, the Löwenheim-Skolem theorem, from 1915, I believe, that shows that for any first-order theory, so including set theory, any first-order theory that has an infinite model has models of every infinite cardinality, including uh, the countable uh, cardinality. So these two theorems seem to contradict each other in a, in a way. So you have one theorem that says that there is at least one set that is not countable, and then you have uh, another theorem that says that you can have a, a, a model of that theory in which, in which um, you can prove that at least one set is not countable, and, and that model is itself countable. Um, so um, it seems like we have a contradiction between the two theorems. Uh, and there are some, uh, the various ways of sort of getting around this um, apparent contradiction, but in the, the sort of short version uh, or, or rough version is that you have to be careful of what you mean uh, uh, of, you have to avoid equivocation. So um, in, in stating uh, the apparent contradiction, you have to pass from uh, notions relative to one model and then move to notions relative to another model. And um, when you do so, you um, there's a danger of uh, equivocation. So treating two terms as the same, even though they're actually different. Uh, and, and in particular, when you say that um, you, when you say that there's a model of set theory that's countable, um, then the uh, the meaning of the the expression that a set within that model of set theory is uncountable is different than the meaning of the uh, of the expression that a set is uncountable um, in a in a different model. Um, so. It's only it only seems like a contradiction because 
you sort of um, uh, abusively use the same expression uh, to say that a set is uncountable in either the countable model or in some other model. Um, and, and so that's, that's sort of um, the explanation of why this is not a, a real contradiction. Um, uh, hopefully that um, more or less makes sense. I tried to um, avoid some of the technicalities of the, of the um, argument. Um, but the bigger picture of the, the school and paradox um, has to do with um, our capacity to uh, pin down the uh, mathematical objects that we want to talk about using uh, an axiomatic theory. Um, so what, what it, uh, it shows is that, or what we can take it to show, what, what some people have taken it to show is that uh, it's not possible using uh, a system of, of first order axioms to, um, to pin down exactly what objects we're talking about when we do mathematics. So if we say um, the set of natural numbers or the set of real numbers, um, no first order set system of axioms is capable of uh, isolating or, or, or pinning down exactly the, the set of natural numbers or the set of real numbers that we want to refer to. Uh, and, and it's always, um, there's always this possibility of uh, these countable models or or models that are uh, that are not the intended model um, sort of uh, creeping in, uh, but uh, and again there there are a number of different ways of sort of uh, dealing with this problem, um, and one one is that in second order logic, so if you axiomatize set theory in second order logic, uh, there is no um, Levenheim-Skolem theorem, so it's not possible to um, to construct models of any uh, cardinality, um, and and so in second order set theory, you can actually uh, uniquely identify the uh, uncountable sets. Um, you don't have to worry about uncountable sets actually being countable in a, in a particular model. Um, so that's that's. Uh, one one way out of this uh, sort of paradox, um, and so um, yeah, so this this more general problem is what Cavalles um, points to here is the uh, um, right at the bottom of page page seven. He says. Um, um, an exhaustive characterization of a model satisfying a system of axioms is impossible. So he he takes it that um, we we can't um, we can't use a system of axioms to define uh, the objects of a mathematical theory. We can't say that you know here are axioms one through ten, and then um, the the objects of our mathematical theory are, are just given through these axioms. You, you, we instead have to suppose the existence of some domain of objects, uh, uh, and then we can, um, within that domain, we can identify which of those objects uh, satisfy the set of axioms. Uh, and and so this is um he he characterizes this as a sort of anti-idealistic argument. So we can't assume that um, 
that mathematical thought is capable of creating its own objects through axioms, we have to we have to, in some sense, take it that mathematical thought uh, and systems of axioms come second. Uh, they come after the existence of the objects that uh, that they describe. Um, so it's it's anti-idealistic in that sense. Um, right. So does does that account of the Skolem paradox sort of make sense? Is is uh, does everyone? Um, follow more or less what what's going on in the, in that paradox. Yeah. Not not hearing anything, I'm going to assume everyone is an expert on uh, model theory now. Um, so we can. Uh, uh, oh, sure. I was just going to say it sounds like the maybe the the upshot for Kavias is this point. The last thing you said about like formalization that it the. The mathematical thought can't be completely formalized because of these um, contradictions, or whether or not they're real contradictions, and and uh, uh, first order modeling. Is that something? Um, yeah. So, what what Kapayas takes to be the the uh, the upshot of of the Skolem paradox is that we we can only ever come after the objects already exist. Uh, so mathematical thought can't create its own objects. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's not exactly the formalization that's the problem. It's, it's this idea of um, having mathematical objects being given purely through a system of axioms in, in first order logic. Um, and and uh, yeah, so it, it's it's that sort of creation, the power of of mathematical thought to create its own objects that uh, that he has an issue with here. All right, uh, so let's go on to uh, Lotman's part, um, which uh, we'll see is, is uh, uh, in some ways a fairly different approach to um, to Cavalier, to Cavalier's approach. Um, but I think we also can see some convergence that we, that we might only get to in the discussion portion of the of the uh, presentation. Um, but uh, maybe I'll let someone else read um, since I've been talking for the, the whole time. Um, so uh, if someone would like to read uh, uh, the first page or so of uh, Lutman's presentation. Uh, I can read. What page does it start? Uh, page eight, uh, about three quarters of the way down. Okay. Communication of Mr. Lodman. Having heard Mr. Cavallas, I'm even more convinced that I do not agree with him and I shall endeavor during a few moments I have the floor to clarify the points in which our views differ. Mr. Cavallas seems to me in what he calls the mathematical experiment, experience, to attribute a considerable role to an activity of the mind, determining in time, the object of its experience. There are therefore, according to him, no general characteristic, no general characters constituting mathematical reality. On the contrary, the latter would assert itself at every moment in the history of mathematics as an event that is both necessary and singular. Hence the criticisms that Mr. Cavallas addresses to Platonism and mathematics, in the sense that Platonism would be identified with the theory of the existence in itself of mathematics. 
I agree with Mr. Caveas on the impossibility of such a conception of an immutable universe of ideal mathematical beings. It is an extremely attractive vision, but of a really too weak consistency. The properties of a mathematical being depend essentially on the axioms of the theory where these beings appear, and this dependence removes them from the immutability that must characterize an intelligible universe. Nevertheless, I consider numbers and figures to possess an objectivity as certain as that which the mind encounters in the observation of physical nature. This objectivity of mathematical beings, which manifests itself in a noticeable way in the complexity of their nature, reveals its true meaning only in a theory of the participation of mathematics in a higher and more hidden reality, which constitutes, in my opinion, a true world of ideas. To make it clear how the study of recent of the recent development of mathematics can justify the platonic interpretation I have proposed, I must first emphasize what has been called the structural aspect of contemporary mathematics. These are mathematical structures, but we will later see how easy it is to go back from these to mathematical, to go back from these mathematical structures to the consideration of dialectical structures embodied in actual mathematical theories. The structural aspect of contemporary mathematics is manifested in the importance of the role played in all branches of mathematics by the set theory due to Cantor, the group theory of Galois, the theory of algebraic fields of numbers of Dedekind. What characterizes these different theories is that they are abstract theories. They study the possible ways of organizing elements whose nature is indifferent. Thus, for example, it is possible to define global properties of order, completion, division into classes, irreducibility, dimension, closure, etc., which qualitatively characterize the collections to which they apply. A new spirit animates mathematics. Long calculations give way to more, the more intuitive reasoning of topology and algebra. Consider, for example, what mathematicians call existence theorems. That is to say, theorems that establish without constructing it the existence of certain functions or certain solutions. In a very large number of cases, the existence of the desired function can be deduced from the overall topological properties of a suitably defined surface. Thus, in particular, since Riemann, a whole geometric theory of analytic functions has developed that makes it possible to deduce the existence of new transcendent beings from the almost intuitive consideration of the topological structure of certain Riemann surfaces. Um, in this case, the knowledge of the mathematical structure of the surface is, an ex is extended in affirmation of existence relative to the function sought. If we reflect on the internal mechanisms of the theory to which we have just alluded, we realize that it establishes a link between the degree of completion of the internal structure of a certain mathematical being, a surface, and the existence of another mathematical being, a function. That is to say, in short, between the essence of a being and the existence of another being. These notions of essence and existence, as well as those of form and matter, of whole and part, container and content, etc., are not mathematical notions. Yet it is toward them that the consideration of effective mathematical theories leads. I call them dialectical notions and propose to call dialectical ideas the problem of the possible connection between dialectical notions thus defined. The reason for the relationship between dialectics and mathematics then lies in the fact that the problems of dialectics are conceivable and formulable independently of mathematics, but that any attempt at a solution to these problems is necessarily based on some mathematical example 
destined to support in a concrete way the dialectical connection studied. Um, I have a question about this. Uh, one of the later kind of objections to Lotman. Um, I think it was Hippolyte that said this, but I, he uh, or somebody pointed out that it didn't. I think they objected that uh, mathematicians probably weren't thinking of these notions in the terms in which Lotman is is formulating them, like essence and existence, form and matter, and whole and part. Um, but I don't think his point is that they think of these, they necessarily have these notions explicitly in mind. Um, I don't know, it seems like they're kind of, they do guide uh, the development of mathematics, but not necessarily, they're not necessarily uh, consciously present in the, in the minds of mathematicians who are working through the, I guess, concretization of the ideas that link these notions. I think that's right. Um, I think uh, that for Lukman, I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to argue that um, individual mathematicians have to think about um, essence and existence in order to prove things about um, uh, functional analysis or, or topology or whatever other um, particular mathematical domain, um, because that seems to be just false in a straightforward historical sense. That uh, so it, it seems pretty clear historically that mathematicians are are perfectly capable of proving things about functions and numbers and and surfaces and so on without having any any awareness necessarily or 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 thinking about any of these notions that that. Um, Lutman uh, is arguing is present here. So um, if we are going to be charitable in our interpretation of Lutman, I think we should uh, uh, assume that he's not saying something that's just obviously um, false in the in that straightforward way. And, and so we should assume that he he's talking about um, uh, notions that would uh, guide or orient the development of mathematics, but without mathematicians being necessarily aware of those notions. Uh, and um, I think this is also borne out by the way that he analyzes different mathematical theories in his uh, his theses. Um, he, he shows these notions, uh, the ones that he lists here, the um, essence and existence, uh, whole and part, um, global and local, and some of, some of these notions. Um, he shows how these notions are at work in different mathematical theories that um, don't have any obvious connection to each other. So there's uh, a certain um, hiddenness that he, that he points to uh, in, in, uh, in this text as well. So the, these, no, these notions are not um, uh, obvious on the surface of the mathematical work they're they're hidden in some sense behind that work um but i think i think overall like uh so this text um or, or this passage that we just read uh is is probably the the most explicit um or the the easiest entry point to to Lutman's work uh and and stating this thesis of uh the the dialectics that um governs the evolution of mathematics uh, in 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 this way, I think is uh, um, I guess is the the most explicit statement in his work. Um, 
but here we don't have the um uh the sort of concrete evidence for this statement he's just um stating it uh as as a, a thesis um but you have to look to his other works where he gives uh, analyses of particular mathematical theories to find the evidence for this statement um and and in those works he he shows how some of these notions are at work in different mathematical theories and uh um it's on the basis of that concrete examination of, of particular mathematical theories that he argues for this notion of of uh the dialectic um it's, it's not just sort of uh uh pulled out of thin air the way it might seem in this text and then i'd also maybe um it's worth commenting on this notion of structure that that he points to um the structural aspect of contemporary mathematics um uh, Lotman and Kavias were both uh, connected to um, the Bourbaki group, um, which was a group of mathematicians working in this time and, and was still active today in some form. But uh, they, they wrote under the pseudonym uh, Nicolas Bourbaki. Um, they, um, they, and, and they came up with this like invented um, biography of, of who this guy was he was supposed to be like some hungarian general or something that that became a mathematician and and uh anyway they they um right thanks um um they uh one of the sort of key ideas that they developed um was this notion of mathematical structure and uh they they set out um these textbooks of different uh, areas in, in mathematics that um, sort of highlighted this notion of structure as being the key idea in in mathematics and and mathematics as being oriented around structure um, and and so Lotman um, in in 1939 is identifying what uh, effectively ended up becoming like one of the key notions of of mathematics in the rest of the 20th century um, which is this notion of structure uh and and so he's he's already highlighting this notion um before it has sort of fully become prominent and, and uh taken the center stage in, in mathematics uh and then it it's it's one that um uh becomes more and more prominent over the course of the 20th century uh, yeah, so an interesting suggestion here from Angus in the chat. Um, could these ideas and notions then be seen as an unconscious of mathematics? Um, I think, yeah, I think that's uh, a possibility. Um, uh, I mean, Lotman doesn't use this um, this term uh, unconscious um, specifically, but uh, I think um, I think the idea that the mathematical thought is guided by something that is not mathematical and that mathematicians are not aware of. Um, I think it sort of lends itself to this uh, vocabulary of the unconscious. And um, uh, like just on that sort of connection between um, mathematics and psychoanalysis, um, like Lacan, of course, was interested in, in some of the developments of mathematics of, of that era. Um, and um, there's a, a mathematician named René Guitard who um, 
um, is sort of like has a, a sort of Lacanian philosophy of mathematics. Um, I, I don't know his work really. I, I have a, one of his books that I haven't had a chance to read yet, but um, he uh, essentially argues for something like an unconscious um, of mathematics or or uh, unconscious thought as as something uh, in mathematics that that plays a role in mathematics. Uh, so yeah, there there's I think some interesting uh, connections to make between uh, Lutman's work and um, uh, psychoanalysis. Uh, yeah. Just put that in the chat here. I don't think any of his work is translated, or I, I haven't seen any translations, at least, uh, but um, or, or of his philosophical work. Um, I'm not sure about the, the mathematical stuff. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he has a sort of Lacanian approach to mathematics. Uh, okay, so let's go on to the next page here. Um, so if someone would like to pick up from the bottom of page nine, let us consider. Let us consider, for example, the problem of the relationship between form and matter. It is possible to ask to what extent a form determines the existence and properties of the matter to which it can apply. This is a chief philosophical problem for any theory of ideas, since it is not enough to pose the duality of the sensible and the intelligible, it is still necessary to explain the participation, that is to say, by whatever name it is called, the deduction, the composition, or the genesis of the sensible from the intelligible. Yet mathematics provides precisely, in some cases, remarkable examples of the determination of matter from form. The whole theory of the representation of abstract groups aims to determine a priori the number of different concrete transformations capable of realizing actually an abstract group of given structure. Similarly, contemporary mathematical logic shows the close connection that exists between the intrinsic properties of a formal axiomatic and the extension of the domain of individuals in which this axiomatic is realized. We therefore have here the spectacle of two theories as distinct as possible from each other. The theory of the representation of groups and mathematical logic, which nevertheless present them which nevertheless present between them close analogies of dialectical structure. Those which come from their being, both of them, particular solutions to the same dialectical problem, that of the determination of matter from form. I indicated above that the distinction of an ideal dialectic and an effective mathematics should above all be interpreted from the point of view of the genesis of mathematics from dialectics. Here is what I mean by this. Dialectics in itself is pure problematic a fundamental antithetics relating to couples of notions that seem at first glance to be opposed, and about which nevertheless arises the problem of a synthesis or a possible conciliation. This is how, for example, I considered in my thesis the problem of the relationships between the local and the global, the extrinsic and the intrinsic, the continuous and the discontinuous, etc. It then turns out exactly, as in Plato's sophist, sophist that the contraries do not oppose each other, but that they can be composed with each other to constitute those mixtures that are mathematics. Hence the need for those subtleties that are so complicated of this unpredictable picturesque, picturesqueness of those obstacles that sometimes one overcomes and sometimes circumvents of all this historical and contingent becoming that constitutes the life of mathematics and which nevertheless presents itself to the metaphysician, metaphysician as the necessary extension of an initial dialectic. One passes insensibly from the understanding of a dialectical problem 
to the genesis of a universe of mathematical notions. And it is at the recognition of that moment when the idea gives birth to the real that, in my opinion, mathematical philosophy must aim. I have tried to show, in a booklet that was published by Librairie Hermann after my thesis, the analogy of these conceptions and those of Heidegger. The extension of dialectics into mathematics corresponds, it seems to me, to what Heidegger calls the genesis of ontic reality from the ontological analysis of the idea. One thus introduces, at the level of ideas, an order of the before and after, which is not time, but rather an eternal model of time, a schema of a genesis that is constantly being carried out, a necessary order of creation. It seems to me that the problem of the relationship between the theory of ideas and physics could be studied in the same way. Consider, for example, the problem of the coexistence of two or more bodies. This is a purely philosophical problem, which we will say Kant posed, rather than solved, in the third category of relation. It turns out, however, that as soon as the mind tries to think what the coexistence of several bodies in space can be, it necessarily engages in the still unsolved difficulties of the problem of n bodies. Let us also consider the problem of the relationship between movement and rest. One can abstractly pose the problem of knowing whether the notion of movement has meaning only in relation to an absolute rest, or whether, on the contrary, there is rest only in relation to certain changes. But any effort to solve such difficulties gives rise to the subtleties of the theory of special relativity. One may also wonder to which, the, to which of the two notions of movement and rest it is necessary to attach a physical meaning. And this is a point where classical mechanics and wave mechanics are opposed. Right. Um, yeah, so there's a couple um, sort of technical points that are maybe worth elucidating before we sort of go into the, the more philosophical content here. So in the last little bit, um, so he, he brings up, he, he mentions in passing here the, the problem of n bodies. Um, and, and this has to do with, uh, this is a, a problem in mechanics um, that uh, um, I don't know like the details very well, but um, effectively the, the n body problem is that um, the, the motion of, um, uh, of three or more bodies relative to each other that, that are um, attracted, that are attracted to each other through gravitation or, or some other, um, uh, some other uh, force, um, they, the, the motion is chaotic. So like in, um, in a simple system, you, you can uh, sort of analyze the motion of each individual body. Uh, and then like, you, so you analyze the motion uh, in, independently of the other bodies. Um, and then you can sort of as a second step, Add on the interaction terms, so you can you can say that um, uh, you know body one uh, moves in a certain direction, and then body two is moving in a different direction, and then secondarily you look at the interaction between those two bodies and uh, see how that changes the direction in which each of them is traveling. Uh, but when you get to um, three or more bodies, uh, what happens is that it's not actually possible to decompose the, the movement in, in this way and, and sort of treat each body independently. Uh, and then as a second step, treat their interaction. Uh, and, and so the effect of body one on body two uh, sort of feeds back into the effect of body two on body one, uh, and you can't isolate them from each other. 
Um, so, so, uh, and, and so this applies even to relatively simple systems like the solar system. Uh, so it's actually, it's actually not possible to prove that the solar system is stable. Uh, uh, so it could be the case that after a certain period of time, however many millions of years, um, that the bodies, the, the planets will either fall into the sun or, or will, um, uh, escape from the gravity of the solar system or, or do all kinds of weird things. Um, so this is, a uh, a sort of general problem, uh, in, in mechanics, uh, and, and so what Lotman is arguing here is that um, we can sort of, in a, in a philosophical sense, we can abstractly pose the problem of what it means for two bodies to be um, in relation to each other or to coexist um, in, in the, the more general case. Um, um, but as soon as we start um, trying to make this problem, try, trying to present a solution to this problem in a precise way, we end up in uh, doing mechanics and uh, entering into this n-body problem. Uh, and then likewise, um, if, we have, if we set out a philosophical problem about movement and rest, and we want to know, is, is there such a thing as absolute movement, or is movement always relative to a certain uh, frame of reference? Uh, and this what this was a a, a debate that um, uh, sort of characterized physics from uh, uh, I guess the 17th century up until the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and and there's a famous set of papers, the Leibniz and Clark debate, um, where uh, Clark was a, a friend of Newton who uh, defends the absolute conception of space and time and, and therefore of movement, um, whereas Leibniz has a, a relative conception of space and time and, and of movement as well. Um, and, and so you can, you can set out philosophical arguments for one or the other uh, positions. So you can say either that, that there is such a thing as absolute movement uh, um, or you can say that movement is, is only defined relative to a frame of reference. Um, but once you start entering into um, some attempt to solve this problem in a precise way, then you, you end up with um, a mathematical theory of movement, and uh, that leads you into, uh, or, or Lutman here suggests that that leads you into uh, special relativity uh, in which um, movement is always relative to a frame of reference. Uh, and, and so that doesn't make sense in special relativity to say that a body is, uh, is uh, moving in an absolute sense. It only, it only makes sense to say it's moving relative to some other body um, uh, for inertial movement, I should say, um, for uh, non-accelerated movement. Um, and, uh, um yeah so these these types of uh problems are are um instances that that he um gives of how what what seems like a philosophical problem or what what can be set out as a philosophical problem can only really receive a solution in developing a mathematical theory uh and um um 
so it's not um it's not possible for for uh, for Lodman, it's not possible to um to sort of come up with a, a philosophical argument that would solve once and for all whether um whether movement is absolute or relative uh it, instead you have to develop a mathematical theory of movement in which you sort of uh decide whether to take movement as um absolute or relative and then you you continue to develop the theory based on that uh, decision uh and then um these different mathematical theories have uh relations to each other through these notions so um there's um uh yeah so the the notions are these um concepts that uh, appear in various mathematical theories that um that sort of guide the um the development of mathematics without mathematicians being aware of them uh and then so the a couple of the of the problems that he raises or or the questions that he raises here are um the relationship between the these uh notions or the the realm of the uh ideal dialectic um and so the relation between that realm and mathematics itself or the the generation of mathematical uh theories uh and he he points to um the the relationship between uh form and matter within um mathematical theories as being a, a sort of model of of how this works uh so there's um um in particular mathematical theories you can um you can find um um you can find like he gives the example of uh, representation of groups uh, and then um, model theory uh, as as instances of this. So you you have some sort of abstract um, structure, and then you can uh, uh, derive from this abstract structure. You can you can show that anything that fills that structure has to have certain properties, um, and and you can look at the relationship between the the property between the properties of the um uh uh objects that fill the structure and then the structure itself um and there's sort of whole domains of mathematics that are dedicated to this type of pursuit um and and so this same type of relationship that uh, occurs within mathematics is is how we can picture the relationship between uh, the ideal dialectic and mathematics as an instantiation of that theory. So there's um, there's this sort of reciprocal uh, relationship between the the dialectical ideas and the concrete mathematical theory. Um, so there's uh, certain properties of mathematical objects that they have to have in order to be able to instantiate the uh, the mathematical, or sorry, the dialectical ideas, um, and uh, uh, so these ideas have to be instantiated in particular mathematical theories uh, in order to to um, uh, have existence. Um, maybe I thought uh, Angus, you might bring up the uh, the bit about Heidegger, the uh, reference to Heidegger here. 
Um, I see you posted something in the chat about that. Um, but um, yeah, I think the, the reference to Heidegger here, uh, and, and this is not the only place where, where he makes reference to Heidegger. He, uh, he does so in another article as well. Um, but it's a, a bit of a strange reference, I think. Um, he, because I, I don't think Heidegger ever uses this exact phrase, the genesis of ontic reality from the ontological analysis of the idea or, or that sort of set of notions together. Um, um, in, in being in time, he does, um, he does sort of want to show how these, uh, uh, ontic structures of Dasein are rooted in ontological structures or, or that there's this more fundamental level of ontological structures, uh, in, in part two or, or division two, I should say, of, of being in time, um, uh, but uh, I don't think he, he uses this term, the genesis, uh, and, and in particular, he doesn't use the term idea. Um, so there's a, a bit of a, I don't know, um, a sort of constructive interpretation going on here that, that Lothman is kind of reading into Heidegger and what he, what he wants to find there, I think, um, as opposed to uh, having like a, a faithful interpretation of Heidegger. Yeah, I thought that the reference, um, I agree with what you just said on um, the idea of the genesis of the ontic from the ontological not really being in, at least in being in time. But I thought that it, it made more sense um, in terms of like understanding and interpretation in Heidegger, where this, this kind of preconceptual projection out of which uh, an intelligible concept is developed um, which would seem to line up with what Lodman is saying here with the uh, pre-mathematical ideas and their instantiation and mathematical uh, theories. There's a couple of other places that I, I, I would have thought that he might have mentioned. Um, the, there's uh, the metaphysics of logic, I think, where, he, where Heidegger is engaging directly with, uh, with Leibniz. Uh, and uh, the lecture series, the Identity and Difference book as well. Those are both places where he is sort of talking about um, part-whole relations, like kind of how you gather, how a multiplicity kind of forms into an identity as a result of uh, a sort of careful sort of phenomenological description of part-whole relations. And listening, like sort of reading this and then seeing mention of Heidegger puts me in mind of those those two places. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with the diagnosis that it's basically a, a kind of constructive um sort of analogy into Heidegger's work rather than something that's kind of dealing with the ideas directly. I think, um, I'm just trying to remember, I think those texts were not published at the time that uh, Lutman was writing. Um, um, like the lecture courses were mostly published after World War II and... Uh, Got it, uh, okay. Yeah, so I think I think he wouldn't have had those texts available. He 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 makes reference to um, um, the introduction to or sorry the not introduction to metaphysics the um, fundamental concepts of metaphysics I think is the name of the text uh, the one where where he talks about the nothing how the nothing annihilates and and the one that Carnot uh, uh, um, yeah so. He, he makes reference to a couple of the texts uh, and then I think being in time as well, possibly. Um, 
but the texts that he refers to are all from the the 20s and 30s um and, and so the the uh there was a a limited amount of heidegger material that was available at that time makes sense but yeah so like it, i think it's sort of open to question whether like even if uh, Lothmann did have all of Heidegger's lecture courses and stuff available, would he have um, modified his interpretation of, of Heidegger or, or his use of Heidegger? I, I'm not sure. Like, I don't, I don't think his, um, his goal is really to uh, do Heidegger exegesis. It, it's um, instead he wants to make use of some of Heidegger's concepts in, in this um, specific way here. I think also, uh, Angus, going back to your comments about, um, the the connection with um understanding and interpretation in heidegger um i think i think that's an interesting suggestion um because uh heidegger always talks about um like well it's something that doesn't come up that often but whenever he talks about sciences he always talks about um the sort of uh preconceptual understanding of the domain of that science um so like physics has a sort of preconceptual understanding of nature on the basis of which um, certain objects get uh, incorporated into the theoretical, uh, into the, the explicit theoretical understanding of, of what nature consists in. And uh, I think that's something that we can, that we can compare to some of these uh, notions, the dialectical notions um, for, for Lothman, like, um, these notions are are sort of these um, pre mathematical um, uh, uh, principles that that govern the formation of a mathematical theory um, in the same way that the the preconceptual uh, uh, awareness or or um, principles uh, for Heidegger um, governs the formation of a, a physical theory or or a, a theory of theology or whatever other particular domain. Okay, um, so we can continue. I can read the next little bit. I'll, um, I'll finish the Lothman part and then go on into the discussion. Uh, actually, no, I think I'll, I'll just finish the rest of the Lothman part and then we can stop for, for there uh, and then continue afterwards. Um, okay, so uh, we're at the top of page 11. Yeah, okay. The former, uh, so I'll, I'll just, sorry, I'll go back one sentence just to uh, clarify that reference. Um, one may also wonder to which of the two notions of movement and rest it is necessary to attach a physical meaning. And this is a point where classical mechanics and wave mechanics are opposed. The former considers the wave as a real physical movement. For the latter, on the contrary, the wave equation appears only as an artifice intended to highlight uh, highlight the physical invariance of certain expressions with respect to certain transformations. Thus appears that the theories of Hamilton, of Einstein, of Louis Debré take on their full meaning by reference to the notions of movement and rest of which they would constitute the true dialectic. It may even be that what physicists call a crisis of contemporary physics, struggling with the difficulties of the relationships of the continuous and the discontinuous, is a crisis only in relation to a certain rather sterile conception of the life of the mind, where the rational is identified with unity. On the contrary, it seems more fruitful to ask whether reason in the sciences does not rather have for its object to see in the complexity of reality, in mathematics as, phys as in physics, 
a mixture whose nature could only be explained by going back to the ideas in which this real participates. We thus see that the task of mathematical philosophy, and even of the philosophy of science in general should be. One must build the theory of ideas, and this requires three kinds of research. That which emerges from what Husserl called descriptive eidetics, that is to say here, the description of those ideal structures embodied in mathematics whose richness is inexhaustible. The spectacle of each of these structures is each time more than a new example brought in support of the same thesis, because it is not excluded that it is possible, and this is the second of the tasks assignable to mathematical philosophy, to establish a hierarchy of ideas and a theory of the genesis of ideas from each other, as Plato had envisioned. It remains finally, and this is the third of the tasks announced, to redo the Timaeus, that is to say, to show within the ideas themselves the reasons for their applications to the sensible universe. These seem to me to be the main goals of mathematical philosophy. Um, right, so he, he begins with this opposition between classical mechanics and wave mechanics. Um, and, and wave mechanics is uh, an alternate formulation of what became quantum mechanics. Uh, um, and uh, we, we saw this um, uh, opposition uh, to some extent in the Simon Dome reading when we were looking at physical individuation. Um, uh, so in, in classical mechanics, a wave is a, a real physical um, displacement that occurs within some sort of um, uh, medium. So like the, a sound wave is a displacement of air, for example. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, this leads to the conception of light. Uh, uh, so the, the conception of light as a wave leads, leads to the conception of uh, the luminiferous ether, which would be uh, some sort of uh, medium in which light waves would propagate. Uh, uh, and and some of, there are some difficulties with that conception that, that led to the development of special relativity at, at the uh, beginning of the 20th century. Um, whereas in wave mechanics or in quantum mechanics, um, in the standard interpretation, the wave function is um, a sort of mathematical uh, um, principle governing the evolution of the system, but it, it, it's a wave in configuration space and not in physical space. So the, the, the wave is not taken to be... Um, a real physical wave, it's uh, this sort of mathematical principle that governs the evolution of a system, um, but it's it's not a, a physical wave. Uh, and then, we, so we saw in uh, in the in discussion of Simon Don that there are these alternate theories of uh, of uh, quantum mechanics, um, namely the the pilot wave theory and the double solution theory, in which there is a real physical wave. Uh, uh, that that corresponds to the um, the uh, the wave function, um, and and so that this is an alternate conception of uh, of, of quantum mechanics that um, Lotman doesn't take into consideration here, um, probably because at this time in 1939 those theories were considered um, or or in in the uh, physics community, those theories were considered to be refuted at this time. Uh, we we talked about this uh, in the Simon Don discussion that uh, there was the the Solvay conference in 1927 where uh, Louis Debray um, 
he um uh he uh presents the pilot wave theory uh and then he receives some objections that he doesn't really have a good answer to and then he gives up that theory uh and then later uh von neumann um uh presents an argument that is meant to show that um theories of of that kind are are uh impossible that you can't have a, a hidden variables theory of quantum physics uh and then it was only in uh 1952 that david bohm uh, showed that it actually is possible to have a um a hidden variables theory of uh of quantum mechanics that that um is adequate that that captures the predictions of standard quantum mechanics um but that's that's sort of a an aside um but um what what Lutman is pointing to here is that um this notion of a, a crisis of physics that um was still prevalent in the 30s uh, this idea that um uh physics is going through a crisis because some of these fundamental um fundamental concepts like uh space and time and and what matter is and so on um that these uh concepts are are sort of being overturned and and re uh reinvented uh and no one really knows how to interpret them anymore uh for for Lotman, this this crisis is really um a reflection of um what he calls a, a sterile conception of the life of the mind um and and so he thinks that this conflict of, of these opposed notions uh where you have um seemingly contradictory um ideas in in quantum mechanics as opposed to uh general relativity for example um these uh opposed notions are are part of a, a dialectic that uh is that is prior to um the mathematical theory in question uh and so we shouldn't see the 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 opposition between these notions as a crisis but instead we should be trying to um work out mathematical theories that that involve some sort of uh uh mixture or synthesis of of these opposed notions uh, and then we have this last paragraph of his uh, of his presentation which is um i don't know it, it's hard to um uh express exactly but it, it's very um it's very evocative i think uh it it's sort of uh especially given the fact that um he of course was not able to work out this um this uh program for mathematical philosophy because uh uh he was executed by the nazis in 1944 um and uh but he sets out this program for mathematical philosophy these three tasks that um that he he um he thinks that mathematical philosophy should be uh pursuing so the first one is um this descriptive eidetics so um it's a, a description of th those ideal structures embodied in mathematics um so it's just uh this is this is the task that he had uh pursued uh in his two theses um so just looking at uh concrete mathematical theories and um analyzing the uh the different structures these ideal notions uh that are at work in these mathematical theories so that's the first task 
uh, and then the second one is dependent on the first. Uh, so it's not just the case that you can identify different mathematical, uh, different um, dialectical notions in various mathematical theories. Um, you can also develop this hierarchy of of these um, of these uh, dialectical ideas from each other uh, in relation to each other. So, and and he describes this as a a genesis of ideas. Um, so, um, this is something that he uh, didn't really have a chance to pursue in in much detail. Um, but uh, it would be a, an account according to which um, different um, dialectical ideas would would be uh, would generate each other. So you would have uh, some dialectical idea that would uh, that would form the the basis for another one. And so we have this notion of a, a genesis, um, not as something that occurs within time, but um, this uh, uh, sort of extra temporal genesis of ideas from each other. Uh, and then finally, the the third task is um, so he, he describes this as redoing the Timaeus, uh, and and so the Timaeus was Plato's dialogue, where he where he gives uh, an account of the creation of the world, uh, so the demiurge, um, this sort of divine uh, entity, um, puts together the world uh, by using various mathematical principles to to construct the world um uh and um simon or i keep saying simon don uh lotman here um he he argues that we need to uh sort of do the same thing so have a, an account of the genesis of physical reality from mathematical principles um uh in a similar way to to how plato um had this account of course it would have to be uh, updated for contemporary physics um, and contemporary mathematics, but uh, um, yeah, it's a it's a genesis of the the physical world from this ideal world. Uh, so uh, uh, this ideal world of the dialectic. So you have um, a genesis of mathematics from the ideal, uh, and then you have a genesis of the physical world from uh, from the ideal as well. Okay, so let's go on to the discussion portion of the uh, of the presentation. Um, I think what would make sense is to read. Let me see how long this is. Um, yeah, so to read each um, intervention uh, as one in one go. Um, so if someone would like to read um, uh, Mr. Cartan's uh, presentation or your intervention, I should say. Uh, I can read this. Okay, discussion, uh, Mr. Cartan. I'm quite embarrassed because I am a little in the situation of Mr. Jordan, who used to speak in prose without, without suspecting it. Mathematicians, at least a number of them, among whom I place myself, are hardly in the habit of thinking about the philosophical principles of their science. When they hear a philosopher talk about them, they're interested. They're not sure how to respond to the considerations he develops. Obviously, I know the thesis of Mr. Cavayas and the thesis of Mr. Lautman, since I was part of the jury of both, but my situation is different. Previously, I was on the right side of the barricade, while today I'm on the other side. I did not quite understand what opposition there was between the two points of view of Mr. Cavayas and Mr. Lautman. 
points of view which seem to me to be different rather than opposing. I have the impression that Mr. Caballese's considerations relate to the very substance of mathematical thought, while Mr. Lopeman's considerations relate more to the current state, not of the whole of mathematics, but to a certain number of mathematical theories. And in this regard, there are obviously a number of statements by Mr. Lotman that are of particular interest to me, those concerning the relations between the local and the global, for, for example. Certainly, these relationships arise in an important part of mathematics. The theory of functions, in particular the functions of real variables, as it has been conceived for 50 years, cannot raise the problem of the relationship between the local and the global. The functions envisaged are too general for their global properties to be deduced from their local properties. But there's a class of functions for which the relationship of local and global is basically the essential part of the problem. These are the analytic functions of complex variables whose global properties are determined by local properties. For quasi-analytic functions, which have recently been introduced, something similar happens. When we know at a point the values of the function and those of its successive derivatives, it is completely determined in its entire field of existence. In geometry, it is especially geometry that Mr. Lotman was thinking of, there are also extremely important problems for which the relationship between the local and the global arises. If we take, for example, a space, this, a small piece of this space, in a space, a small piece of this space, is it possible by the knowledge of this small piece to deduce the knowledge of the whole space? Of course, it must be assumed that this space has fairly simple global properties, without which this problem would not make sense. These are on the surface problems of pure geometry, but in reality, there are also problems of analysis. Let there be, for example, a portion of Riemannian space. If you assume that the functions that intervene to define the space are analytical, you will have a problem extremely interesting, which is the following. Knowing a small piece of Riemannian space defined analytically by its differential form, to what extent can we deduce the global properties of this space? It may happen that this small piece cannot be extended until it forms a complete space. In general, this is what, that is what happens. If it can be extended to form a complete space, it can be extended in only one way with certain restrictions. This is therefore a problem of the relationships of the global and the local, which is not defined simply by its geometric statement, but which is related to the existence of purely analytical properties in the definition of the piece of the space. Similar considerations could be developed about the relationship between the intrinsic and the extrinsic. Given a surface immersed in a certain space, do the assumed to be known intrinsic properties of the surface imply limitations of the properties of the space that contains it. There are some extremely interesting problems here, but it should be noted that they depend not only on the geometric position of the problem, but on its analytical position. Mr. Lodman gave a number of other examples of such problems, form and matter, group theory, all this is very interesting, but I do not know to what extent it justifies Mr. Lotman's general thesis, because I do not quite understand what dialectics is, and I am obliged to remain on a purely technical ground. I do, I do not have the impression that Mr. Lotman's considerations contradict those of Mr. Kavayas. I have the impression that Mr. Lotman considers some particular problems of modern mathematics and a number of philosophical problems. 
I think I am on the whole in agreement with him, but unfortunately I'm unable to discuss this with him in this field. In any case, with regard to the character of mathematics having an autonomous and unpredictable development, I believe that, I believe that one cannot go against this statement. However, history teaches us that there has been in the history of mathematics, which I know, which I've lived, certain predictions of the future. There was in 1900 a conference by Hilbert on the future problems of mathematics, an extraordinarily remarkable conference because precisely he put his finger on the problems that were to arise in the development of mathematics for 50 years at the least. And he anticipated precisely the most important problems that have actually arisen. On the other hand, I, on the other hand, one could find lectures by eminent scholars on the future of this or that branch of mathematics in which these scholars did not foresee at all what was going to happen. Certainly, the, the development of mathematics is something unpredictable in itself. And when one reaches a certain age, one realizes that certain theories, after 20, 30, or 40 years, take on a completely unexpected development. And that the point of view from which we end up envisaging them is quite different from the initial point of view. However, we are obliged to recognize that these are internal necessities that have been revealed in the further development of these theories. I'm thinking, for example, of topology, the science which barely existed half a century ago, and which takes on a new aspect every day in a completely unexpected development, penetrating deeper and deeper into all branches of mathematics. I think this idea that, in some cases, the predictions of mathematicians are accurate, and in some cases they are not, is exactly like prospective contingency, right? I don't think the fact that Hilbert got it right and others got it wrong means that these things aren't contingent uh, looking forward. Yeah, I think um, if we look back at Caballese's text, um, he, he does mention the, um, the intuition of mathematicians as um, having this capacity of predicting where, uh, where the um, solution of a various problem is going to come from. So mathematicians who are working in a particular domain, um, they, they often are able to um, pose conjectures, even if they can't prove something, they can say that, um, that we have, you know, a lot of reason to believe that uh, this proposition is true or false, uh, and uh, and then that sort of sets a problem for other mathematicians or or the same mathematicians to eventually prove or refute that conjecture. Um, and so, uh, I don't think the contingency of uh, of mathematical history is um, is in contradiction with this capacity for mathematicians to make conjectures or, or to make, uh, to have this intuitive sense of where, um, where the development is going to go in the future, uh, because it's never, um, it's not like, um, stating a conjecture, uh, stating a conjecture is, is something quite different from proving a conjecture. Uh, and, and so, and you can't sort of read off the the proof from just the statement of the conjecture. And so uh, Hilbert was able to um, point to th these uh, these 20, 27 uh, problems, or sorry, I think how many problems? 23 problems, sorry. Um, um, he was able to point to these problems um, that, that uh, uh, sort of 
ended up being uh, the many of the the key problems of 20th century mathematics, and some of them are still open today. Um, uh, but in doing so, he didn't he he didn't sort of um, uh, set up future mathematicians to just sort of mechanically um, derive the results from the statement of the problem. So it still takes a huge amount of creativity and and uh, introduction of new concepts and techniques to solve these problems that that he stated. Um, and and so um, this, I think the contingency is um, sort of it, it's maybe a, a bit of a miss um, uh, a misstatement to to try to link this contingency with uh, predictability. Um, or, or at least they aren't. Uh, they don't sort of coincide uh, the, the the question of contingency and the question of predictability because there there is some uh, a certain degree of predictability in mathematics um, in the sense that you can um, you can sort of uh, have this intuitive sense of where uh, where problems are, are are what which problems are important and and uh, what's uh, types of solutions certain problems are going to have, um, uh, but that doesn't mean that um, the actual solution of that problem is is something that can just be derived in a mechanical way from the the statement of the problem. Um, I think this uh, this intervention here is a an interesting one, precisely because Carton was um, uh, one of the uh, leading French mathematicians of the time. Uh, and um, uh, and he was also on the the jury of uh, both Lotman and Cavalier's uh, theses, um, or the committee, I guess I should say. Um, and uh, his his relation to or his his um, uh, questions about Lotman's uh, idea of dialectics, I think, is an interesting one because he he seems to be in agreement with a lot of the actual concrete analyses that that Lotman gives so the 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 presentation of uh uh the concepts of the the global and the local at work in different mathematical theories or intrinsic and extrinsic and so on um he seems to agree with a lot of that uh analysis that Lotman gives but he he's sort of skeptical of um the or he he at least reserves judgments about the the dialectical the idea of dialectics and he he doesn't even go into the question of uh, whether this dialectics is something extra mathematical or um, or or whether we have to think of mathematical uh, development as being uh, sort of autonomous and and self contained uh, so there's uh, uh, I think it's interesting that he he has some sympathy for um, for these ideas, and he, he's obviously not opposed to the idea of um, uh, this philosophical analysis of mathematical theories, since he was, um, you know, a, a member of the committee uh, for both of their theses. But he he's still sort of uh, reticent to, about um, uh, about some of the more uh, Speculative sides of uh, of Lodman's development. Okay, so let's go on to um, Levy's um, 
contribution. Uh, if someone else would like to read, yeah, it's about a page long. So yeah, we can read read that in one go. Um, if someone else would like to read. I can go again. Uh, Mr. Paul Levy, I could first of all repeat what Mr. Cartan just said just now. I'm a little dis disconcerted when I hear philosophers talking about the science that I study in a language that I am not used to. I struggle to follow them, and I'm not sure I understand everything they say. I think I'm just about certain I've understood some of it, but I'm equally certain I didn't quite understand some things. I cannot, therefore, express an opinion on all the issues that have been raised. I can only present a few thoughts that were suggested to me by Mr. Cavallese's conference, and I believe that they do not miss the point. If I am wrong, I apologize. I think I am somewhat in opposition to Mr. Cavallese, yet his conclusion reassured me when he said that there, that there were, in the becoming of mathematics, some inner necessities which were revealed. I believe that the development of mathematics, while having a great contingency, it goes without saying, presupposes much deeper inner necessities. Naturally, it was impossible to predict that such a theorem was to make its appearance at such a date in history, but inner necessities play a very great role, and there are theorems of which I can tell you. If such a scholar had not found such a theory at such a time, and if such a theorem had not been proved such a year, it would have been discovered within five or ten years. I give as proof that a very large, 69, number of theorems were, at very short intervals, discovered separately by different scholars because they responded to a need for the development of mathematical thought at that time. Therefore, this allows me to think that, when a certain mathematical theory has begun, a superior mind can predict a little in which direction it will develop. I take, as a concrete example, one of the mathematical theories whose philosophical aspect has attracted the most attention, the theory of the integral, as the modern theory of sets has made it possible to build it. Uh, it was Mr. Lebesgue who gave the notion of integral its final form, and currently you all know that this integral is an essential tool of mathematics. It is so essential that, without a doubt, if Mr. Lebesgue had not existed, his integral would still be, today, something discovered a long time ago. I do not think I diminish Mr. Lebesgue's merit. On the contrary, I believe that I am merely increasing it by saying that he has highlighted a concept that was necessary for the further progress of science. Would Monsieur Emile Borel, uh, who was already working in this area, have developed this theory? Would it have been given to another of his students to do so? I don't know. But after the work of Jordan, Jordan, Jordan and Mr. Borel, given the current level attained by the whole of humanity and the number of researchers specialized in the field of mathematics, I believe that it was necessary and inevitable that within 10 or 15 years, the theory of Lebesgue integral would be would be established. Uh, and in this vein, I believe to a certain extent that the development of mathematics is predictable. Of course, it must not be denied that, on the other hand, certain discoveries constitute an unpredictable leap in the development of science, coming before their time. It happens that their importance is recognized only after a longer or shorter time. On the other hand, it is certain that there are, among mathematicians, geometers, and algebraists, some operate in one branch of mathematics, others in another, it would have been conceivable that the human species contained only geometers and not algebraists, or vice versa. It is also possible that a further development of humanity will allow certain brains to devote themselves to certain branches of mathematics that we cannot conceive of at present. On the other hand, there is one point on which the two speakers agreed, and to the extent that I understood them, I am a little surprised. For me, mathematics would have no reason to exist if its object were considered non-existent. 
When I say that the product of two numbers is independent of their order, it is, 70, something that is true, regardless of the fact that I state it. This is not true only in my thinking. I take a simple example which can be verified objectively. I have rectangular boxes comprising a number of rows and columns. I have a certain number of marbles that I want to put, and I want to put one in each box. Well, the same number of marbles will be enough, depending on whether I fill the boxes by rows or by columns. I take this very simple example because in others, it would be difficult to find a material interpretation to verify the accuracy of a theorem. For me, the theorem pre-exists. When I try to prove whether a statement is true or false, I'm convinced that it is true or false in advance, regardless of the chances I have of discovering it. Let's take another problem. Is Riemann's hypothesis about his function uh, accurate or false? I believe that most mathematicians are convinced that it is accurate, although no one has proved it. And I think that all the mathematicians who are in this room will agree that, though we may never get there, this hypothesis is in itself true or false, even if we cannot know whether it is true or false. If I understand your language correctly, you will express my position by saying that I am a Platonist, but I can't imagine what might make me abandon this point of view. Yeah, the, uh, in that last bit there, the, um, maybe I should have written it out in, in letters, but it's the zeta function. Um, so this, this is a, a famous um, um, uh, function that Riemann uh, had uh, identified that um, it has the property of um, giving uh, an estimate of the number of prime numbers um, in a certain range. Uh, so if you take like the numbers between uh, 1,000 and 10,000, uh, you can use the, the Riemann zeta function to give an estimate of how many prime numbers there are in uh, in that range of numbers, um, and uh, it, it's uh, anyway there there there's um, an open problem uh, having to do with uh, proving that this estimate is is correct. That that you if you um, uh, if you um, continue uh, to evaluate the function. Then, um, um, then you get better and better estimates of the number of prime numbers uh, less than a given number, uh, and, and so that's an open problem that uh, has been open since uh, the mid nineteen eighteen fifty nine. Yeah, um, um, yeah. There's a, a weird sort of thing in um, in the French text. Um, <clears throat> they. Uh, the anyway, the, it, it looks like there's an error of the stenographer, um, but I'm not 100% sure what happened exactly. But it, it certainly seems like he's referring to the zeta function uh, in in this passage here. Um, but what he's arguing for is um, uh, essentially the what what he calls the Platonist position um, that. Um, um, is is essentially just the position that mathematical propositions have a truth value independent of our capacity to prove or to know what that truth value is. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting that this is sort of where he goes to because this question was not really one that uh, either of the presentations was uh, was devoted to like they weren't um they weren't 
setting out to prove either that um, or to to argue that either um, mathematical propositions do have a determinate truth value independent of our knowledge of them or the contrary. Um, this, this wasn't really a problem that was a, a, a core um, question of either of their presentations. So I think it's interesting that um, as a, a mathematician who, um, uh, as he says, he, he doesn't really, um, he, he's unsure of um, uh, how to um, how to understand philosophical uh, analyses of mathematics. His his sort of first um, first thing that he like latches onto is uh, is this question of whether mathematical propositions have a determinate truth value uh, independent of our of our knowledge of them. Um, so he he for whatever reason this this question seems to be. Um, one that mathematicians gravitate towards, even when there's uh, uh, the when the, the the philosophical discussion is not really oriented towards that question. Uh, and I think there's also um, in a little bit earlier in his intervention, there's um, there's this again this question of predictability, um, this whether or not there's um, uh, whether or not it's possible to predict where mathematics will evolve. Uh, um, and he he takes the position that um, that this contingency that that we find and and that Cavalles uh, pointed to is is sort of illusory um, or um, it, there, that the necessity side is more um, more prominent or or more important uh, and and so he points to the way that uh, in uh, a number of instances. You find um, that more than one mathematician proves a theorem at, at the same or, or uh, roughly the same time, uh, independently of each other, um, and and so what he takes this to show is that there's uh, a certain necessity um, that is more fundamental than the um, apparent contingency. So the contingency is only from the perspective of um, uh, it's, it's only due to our ignorance, uh, whereas the necessity is is a real necessity that underlies the evolution of mathematical thought. Uh, so he's he's um, uh, contesting the the reality of the contingency side of Cavalli's dialectic, and I think um, maybe more on that last point is is that I think it's um, it's also a bit surprising. Um, from a from a, a mathematician to make that argument because it uh, is effectively denying that mathematicians are creative when they uh, solve problems, uh, and and so if you if you deny if you hold that the contingency side of the dialectic is is only um, a result of our ignorance, then uh, you're effectively saying that mathematicians who um, who uh, solve problems and, and prove theorems are are just sort of working out the necessary consequences of uh, of various mathematical um, uh, uh, principles, rather than having uh, some sort of creative development of of mathematics uh, through uh, invention of new concepts and new techniques. Okay, so let's go on to the next. Um, 
intervention here from Mr. Prechet. Um, let's see, how long is it? This one's a bit long, so I might maybe we can break it up into two. Um, but I'll I'll start reading and uh, uh, we'll see if there's a natural stopping point. Okay, uh, Mr. Prechet. I will begin by agreeing with an observation that has just been made before me successively by Mr. Cartan and Levy. For a mathematician who devotes the main part of his activity to mathematics, it is extremely difficult to follow in all their nuances the presentations, though so informative, of Mr. Lotman and Kapayes. Perhaps the difficulty in discussing them is not so much in what they said as in the prior need to understand exactly what they meant. Before going into a few details, however, I would like to say that in any case, I admire the virtuosity with which they handle not only philosophical language, but also mathematical language. We are immersed in mathematics and, at least as far as I am concerned, completely ignorant of the subtleties of philosophical language and the nuances that differentiate certain philosophical theories. While our distinguished colleagues seem, on the contrary, both to operate with ease, not only in philosophy, but in mathematics. Finally, they know uh, about the technique, about the results of certain parts of mathematics, many things that personally I do not know. Precisely for these reasons, for the reasons I have indicated above, I do not want to repeat one by one the various subjects they have dealt with. But there are two or three points on which I may have understood their thesis and on which I would like to say a word. First of all, there are two questions that are related, at least in my mind, and to which I could perhaps give an answer. Mr. Cavallas indicated that, in his opinion, mathematics is an autonomous science. Personally, I do not think so. Everything depends, first of all, of course, on what is called mathematics. Many people call mathematics the set of deductive theories that make it possible to pass from a set of properties and axioms to certain theorems. This is, without doubt, the most specific part of mathematics. But it seems that if we stopped there, not only would mathematics be reduced to a machine of transformations, in this case, its role would still be very useful, but that it would be limited to transforming, so to speak, emptiness into emptiness. I believe that to justify the existence of mathematics, it is essential to show in it an instrument that was invented to help man to know nature, to understand it, and to predict the course of phenomena. Uh, the notions that seem to me the most fundamental in mathematics are all notions that do not come, in my opinion, from our intelligence, from our mind, but that are imposed on us by the outside world. I will mention, for example, the whole number, the line, the plane, the ideas of speed, force, certain transformations such as symmetry, similarity. These are notions that were not present in our minds, but that were imposed on us by the consideration of the world around us. We translated these external realities into words, axioms, definitions, which represented them only approximately, of course, which were simpler to be more manageable, but which still had their source in the outside world. These fundamental notions that we find at the origin of mathematics are constantly added in others, introduced by the development of the physical sciences. The notions of work, of momentum, of a force, for example, have only been defined, to my knowledge, for two or three centuries. Many other notions that I could indicate, such as differential equations, were introduced only in modern times as a result of the development of physics, mechanics, astronomy, etc. In addition to these notions whose study is, so to speak, imposed on us, other notions of a different nature have been introduced in mathematics. These are those which are due to the internal activity of this science. They seem to me much less fundamental than the others, having been imagined to facilitate the task of the mathematician with a view to the solution of the problems posed from outside. To give elementary examples, let us mention transformation by inversion, transformation by reciprocal polars. These are two transformations that, as far as I know, have not been imposed by examples taken from nature, 
They are the artifices of mathematicians that provide means of investigation. Similarly, I think that the introduction of complex numbers has provided an extremely powerful instrument more quickly. One could cite many other examples. In elementary geometry, one introduces the consideration of supplementary trihedra. Here again, I don't think there is a real phenomenon that forces us to consider these supplementary trihedra, but it does provide a convenient way to transform one proposition into another in elementary geometry. I see, therefore, in the examples I have just mentioned, two categories of notions, some that fall well within the category of autonomous mathematics and others, on the contrary, that do not seem to me to be reconcilable with the idea of an autonomous mathematics. On the contrary, this leads me to agree with Mr. Caballes, for reasons different from his own, it is true, on the unpredictability of mathematics, placing myself at a point of view which, moreover, is entirely reconcilable with that presented by Mr. Paul Lévy, and which would seem to lead to a contrary conclusion. Mr. Lévy gave many examples where problems could not fail to be solved by mathematics, and in this sense, mathematics was predictable because these were problems that mathematicians had posed for the internal development of mathematics. But there are constantly, in the development of sciences outside mathematics, problems that arise that are imposed on mathematicians, that mathematicians are asked to solve and that give them new ideas, forcing them to introduce new notions. And those ones are unpredictable. We do not know, we cannot even imagine the nature of the problems that in 50 years' time, technology or physics may pose to mathematicians. Perhaps we will have the means to solve these problems by drawing on the existing arsenal of mathematical theories. Perhaps we will have to create new mathematical tools. There is an impulse from outside and whose interventions are of an unpredictable nature. That is what I wanted to say about autonomy and non-predictability of mathematics. Uh, yeah, let's stop here. Uh, now, I'll mention this footnote. So, um, um, he, he um, added these footnotes to the, the stenography afterwards. Um, so he says, I developed these two points among others in a report presented in Zurich in December 1938 on the question of the foundations of mathematics and general analysis at a colloquium organized by the International Institute for Intellectual Cooperation, whose debates will be published by that institute. Um, so here, the, uh, the question of um, this autonomy of mathematical science, of, of mathematics, um, is, uh, is raised in connection with um, the relationship between mathematics and, uh, and physics in particular, but other sciences uh, in general. Uh, and so, so he, he makes a distinction here between um, particular uh, problems that are posed internally to mathematics uh, that, that mathematicians raise for themselves, uh, and then on the other hand, uh, problems that arise uh, from external domains that are sort of imported into mathematics. And he argues that um, the existence of these problems uh, posed by physics or other uh, external domains um, uh, makes mathematics not autonomous in the sense that Cavallas had had used the term, um, and and this also has to do with the question of the contingency and necessity of of mathematical development, because he he argues that it's only these internal problems that have this um, uh, sort of necessary development um, that the the necessity side is a um, a characteristic of mathematical problems that are posed internally to mathematics 
whereas the contingency side would be um, would be a product of um, these external problems that are imported into mathematics. Uh, and so for him, the the distinction between necessity and contingency uh, is not um, it's not a, a dialectical problem. It's not something where we have to hold on to these two contradictory ideas at the same time. Uh, it's a question of two different aspects or two different sets of problems uh, in mathematics. Um, so for him, he he wants to um, sort of reduce what for Cavalles is this um, dialectical uh, notion or or something that is uh, uh, only graspable in in philosophical thought. Um, he wants to reduce this to just a distinction between um, particular domains in mathematics, uh, we, we could call it like pure and applied mathematics, I guess. Um, I think we should probably um, stop here rather than uh, going on to the next bit of the um, of the discussion, uh, just because just uh, in terms of time uh, and there's yeah, about a page left of this, uh, of Richard's um, intervention. So we can save that for next time. Uh, and then we can continue from there. Um, and then, let's see. Erasman uh, and then Hippolyte. Um, yeah, so that, and then after a couple pages, uh, starting from page 20, we, we get, uh, no, sorry. From, yeah, from... 21, we get um, Cavallet and Lotman's replies to the uh, to the other interventions. Um, so yeah, we, we hopefully we should be able to finish the the text next time. I think um, I uh, I managed to get a hold of the uh, the translation, the other translation that that I mentioned in the chat um, a couple weeks ago, uh, and it, so. As I suspected, it's only fragments of the uh, discussion uh, of the, the actual presentation. Um, and so this uh, translation that, that I did is actually more complete than, than that one. So it, it wasn't complete, a complete waste of time. Uh, so that's always nice to, nice to know. Nice. That's great. It didn't have any of this discussion portion. No, it's just the um, portions of the uh, presentation at the beginning. Where did you find it? Where Where is it? Um, I posted the uh, the book. The book. It's a collection called French Philosophy After 1945, um, which is kind of ironic given that this uh, talk was actually presented in 1939. Um, but uh, let's see, where is it? Anyway, it's a you have to scroll up a ways in the in the chat to find it. But um, I managed to get the interlibrary loan to do a scan of it for me, and and uh, yeah, I haven't sat down and compared the 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 other translation with mine to see you know where where there are divergences or or alternate choices and so on, um, which uh, I'm gonna have to do at some point, um, but. Yeah, at least it's not um, the the other one. At least is not a complete translation like this one is. Okay. Um, so yeah, thank you everyone for uh, showing up and uh, for your contributions. Uh, and we'll continue 
next week. And I think we should be able to finish the text next week, hopefully.